0: probably could have easily brought you a sermon this week on um, a passage that is now very um, keenly applicable to my life um, from Genesis chapter 2 um, when God surveys all these create he's made the garden he put Adam in there to take care of it and he looks at Adam and he sees that he's all alone and he says it's not good for man to be alone um, I've been alone sort of to speak uh, in the last little while my wife has been recovering from surgery it's been the kind where she's not able to do anything but sit up watch TV, talk on the phone, and receive meals. No, it's not quite that bad, is it, Hannah? <laughs> but really, she's on doctor's instructions. She can't, she can't lift. She can't take care of our little children. She's not supposed to be cooking. She's not supposed to lift anything over 10 pounds. So that's given me a totally different assignment. And, um, you know, though I was born in Canada, my parents came from the West Indies. And, uh, you know, fathers from the West Indies don't do a lot around the house sometimes. So we had a good arrangement going on. And uh, I've learned a lot. I know why Hannah feels tired at the end of the day, and I'm very thankful um, that God saw fit to give me a wife, a good wife. So she's recovering well. I wanted to tell you that so I could answer a couple of questions that I keep getting. How is she doing? Well, she's doing fine. Um, everything's going well. Um, we've got about three more weeks until she should be strong enough to do some stuff again, and I'm looking forward to that um, because I don't make a very good mom. I can't even do laundry and make sure my clothes are ironed on time. So... So I'm looking forward to that. But I, I didn't come to talk to you guys tonight about Genesis 2, which I do, do enjoy talking about. I've come to talk to you about another topic that I'm really excited about is the church. We, we are great fans of the church, Han and I. Um, and if you saw my title this morning, you're wondering what I, would I be talking maybe about some exercise or some, some health. My title for this sermon was called Big Body People. Um, that might have been in a moment of weakness when they asked me for a title. But really, the big is, is sort of like, you know, you can be a big fan of basketball right? And if you're a big basketball fan, you're watching the March Madness right now, right? Or you could be a big baseball fan, and if you're a really big baseball fan, you might have gone down and caught a few games of the international stuff. But I'm thinking that maybe we could be big body people, right? Big fans of the church. Why? Let me explain. Uh, I don't normally pay attention to stocks or anything. I'm not sure, but I got a little bit of thing going on around here. I feel like I'm in this aura. Um, I don't normally pay attention to stocks and all that stuff, but I've been listening to 680 a lot, um, news all the time, and they're talking about this thing called a recession. You know, I'm I'm young. I think they talked about a recession happening once in history, but there's apparently something going on now called a recession and and bailouts and and all this kind of stuff, and it's affecting everybody. I went to get fish and chips the other day. I love love fish and chips. I've been trying to sample all the places in Oshawa that they've gone to. I found a new place. um, It's called British-style fish and chips. I won't tell you where it is because I want them to save it all for me. Um, But I went there, and and on the on the window they had this little poster, and it was uh, a hip hop poster, but it said the recession tour. So hip hop is noticed as a recession going on, and when I went to get lunch, they were talking about the recession. I get back in the car and I turn on a local radio station and they're talking about the, um, this prize giveaway. And they're saying, you need, you need an individual bailout. You know, the economy is going bad for you. Don't just give it to the big business. Give it to the individuals. We'll, we're going to give you an individual bailout. So you call and be ninth caller or tenth caller or whatever. And, and we're going to give you that bailout, some, some prize package they're talking about the bailout. Right? And then, of course, you turn on the news. And this past week, it was the big scandal about those guys from AIG. Uh, getting those kickbacks or the bonuses you know i don't really understand that if your company does well i guess it succeeds and doesn't need money but if you do poorly you ask the government for money and then give it to all the top execs anyhow that doesn't make a lot of sense to me but you know but they're talking about it there right everywhere they're talking about recession bailout and all that stuff i'm not giving you any news well so the government hears that and they look at our society and they say man we got to help out big business. There's, we can't have a recession. People, people's lives and happiness are stakes, so, at stake, so we're going to dump some money onto this thing, and we're going to fix everything like that. Right? And I started thinking, man, you know, they, they'd said something about GM, and now I listen to a lot about GM stuff. When I lived in West London, I listened to a lot about Ford stuff, but now I listen to GM, because I'm an Oshawa man now. Um, they said Oshawa employs, uh, South, Southern Ontario employs something like 19 or 20,000 20, workers, right and so that's why they're looking for this thing that's going to affect our economy. Well, I looked up and I thought, well, if 20,000 people are not doing well and the government want to do something, they wanted to give them some money. That's a good thing they're concerned about 20,000 citizens. But then I looked up and saw, well, how many people are, you know, are church attenders in Canada? And uh, and what does the government think about helping out the church? Not that we need help, Right? But if, if you're thinking about the government's roles, they're thinking, well, we've got to do something. We've got to make sure Canada stays stable. You know, We have an economy. There's problems happening. If we get into a recession, recession is really bad. Nobody wants to go there. But what about this? We live in a country where our morality has gone down, right? It's gone down terrible. It's plummeted faster, than the economy's fallen, right? And there, there, are, there are at least six mil, uh, 600,000, I think it said. Six million, maybe, in Canada. No, 600,000, probably, right? Anyways, a number that completely dwarfs the employees from GM. And the government doesn't say anything about, it. We, should, we should make sure the churches are doing right. Right? If the economy goes down, if money, as Pastor Rick teaches us, that God falls over, we've got to prop it back up. But if our original God falls over, we don't care. Here's the thing. I was just going through, thinking about how that all works out. And, you know, why does the government want to bless this one area with money, uh, with money and, and interest and news and media attention and leave the church all to itself? And I, and I decided it's still true that people just are no longer inspired by church. Not us. I told you I'm a big fan of church. But people in general, they don't, they don't really think this is where it's at. They don't really think this is the salvation of, of, of Canada. They don't really think that this is where things are going to happen if Canada's going to change and, and get better. They're more concerned about the money in their pockets than the, than the sins they have in their closet. So we, we have a problem. I still have that problem. Can I just get it turned down a little bit, please? Please? We have this problem. We're supposed to be the light to the world. Right? You've heard that? Right? But yet, when we, when we take our light out and we shine it in front of people, don't you ever feel that they just don't notice? Right? Sometimes, sometimes you feel that way. Sometimes I feel that way, um, working with the students and all that kind of stuff. We have, we have all this stuff going on. We have programming. We have worship service. We have outreach efforts. Um, but we have yet to develop in their minds a lasting and motivated motivating image resulting in faith. Right? There's still a lot of people that don't believe. What are we going to do about that? We have a, a group of people in this world that are uninspired by the church. They're spiritual they're seeking spirituality, but they're uninspired the church. So instead of coming to the church, they turn to mediums and diviners and gurus and philosophers and magicians and tarot card readers and psychiatrists and even talk show hosts for images of inspiration. Brothers and sisters, this should not be. Don't you know that you are God's temple and God's spirit lives in you? That's what 1 Corinthians 3:16 says. So if we were the church and we really want to be happy with what we're doing and excited about what's happening, we should, we should be longing for the day when people who are seeking God and seeking spiritual things want to turn to us first and want to come to us and say, you've got something. We're inspired. We want to come and hang out with you. We want to understand what, how spirituality works for you. What is this connection with God that you have? How is this going to work? We need, we need your help. We need people to become fans of the church. We want them to be big body people, too. So how are we going to do this? We, we need God's help, of course. I think there's a couple reasons why people have been uninspired by the church, and this is just by way of intro. Um, I think there's two reasons why people have been uninspiring, uninspired of the church. Kind of, we've given them some uninspiring images in history. One reason that people are often uninspired by the church is blatant sin. Right? It's, it's scandalous when, when bad things happen. Right, Galatians 5:19 lists some blatant sins. If, if these things are operating in our church, then of course, if somebody looked in through our doors and looked at our organization, they would they would not um, not be inspired at all by what they saw. 5:19 it says, the acts of the sinful nature are obvious: sexual immorality, impurity and debauchery, idolatry and witchcraft, hatred, discord, jealousy, fits of rage, selfish ambition, dissensions, factions, and even drunkenness. Um, orgies and the like, I warn you as I did before that those who live like this will not inherit the kingdom of God. None of those things are inspiring. If someone's looking to improve their life, they wouldn't look at us if, we were, if those things are going on. If those things are operating here, um, I'm not suggesting they are, but if they were, and someone's coming here looking for God, they wouldn't be inspired by that. Neither would you. Another reason why um, that we sometimes have given as a church, general church, to people to not look at us for inspiration, for spiritual inspiration, is the way we work um, we don't sometimes work very well. We have had, at some point in history, coined the phrase, the 20-80 rule. You might have heard about this, where you have 20% of the people doing 80% of the work. You've heard about that? Maybe you've been on a team like that. Maybe you've done projects like that. I know people have done projects like that in the high school group. There's four people, and one of them is doing all the work, right? Um, maybe my marriage was working like that. Sorry, Hannah. <laughs> no, I'm just kidding. It's not that bad. Um, Right? But that's that's not inspiring. When you see a bunch of people working together and you notice that only a few are doing all the work, who wants to get involved with something like that? That's not inspiring. Um, the other thing that's not inspiring is when you see that everybody's going, there's a whole bunch of bosses and no teamwork. Right? That would describe my high school volleyball teams. Just... We'd, we'd play six of us, but everybody was playing their own thing. Nobody was working together at all. It, it was just an ugly mess. It was not inspiring. We couldn't win. We couldn't do anything. Nobody wanted to play on, on the Laurier Rams volleyball team at all. I didn't even want to be there. Neither, the, neither did my teammates. It's, it's like a two-headed person. It's just hideous. It doesn't look right. right? It's uninspiring. When you get no teamwork, when you get um, everybody doing their own thing, and you get lots of players but no teamwork, that's not inspiring at all. So sometimes we give people these reasons to stay away from church. But we're not, I'm not here to talk badly about church. This is a great church. We were just on the way here talking about how much we've enjoyed this church. Um, we've been blessed in the last couple of weeks. People have brought us meals. I've got to tell you, people have cleaned our house. Um, people have played with our kids, taken our children away. They've, they've blessed us in so many ways. We, we have been fortunate in the two churches where we have pastored at. The church has been very good to us. And so I just scratched my head and thinking, how do I get people to see past these misconceptions and see what we really have to offer. So I've been looking and trying to think well, what's an inspiring image that we can that we can talk about that might get people interested in the church? And so I read, I read in my Bible and I look at Paul, and Paul came up with one. He he used to talk about the body. Right? Um, now, is the body an inspiring image? Maybe some of your bodies don't seem that inspiring. When I look in the mirror, I'm not that inspired anymore. I used to be work out and run track and all that kind of stuff, but over the years, I've had too many good meals, not enough exercise. That takes its toll on you. Um, this could be dangerous. I Just see what's going to happen here. Look, I could have fallen off. That's, thank you for your concern. Um, I'm just going to leave that for a second. We're looking at the body. Are we, is the body an inspiring image? Some people think it is. Some people might not think it is. But when the time Paul was writing, it was definitely inspiring. It, it inspires art. If we, if we go and look at museums, you'll see that there's lots of stuff dedicated about the, the body, right? There's faces in our pictures. There's, um, there's images of the body. We've got gyms. We've got muscular men. We've got beautiful women all over the place, right? It's an inspiring thing. Well, back in Greco-Roman culture, it was the same way. Look at this sculpture here. I placed that tag there for the benefit of those who have um, shy eyes. They're wrestling, if you can't tell. But this is a, this is a sculpture, right? And, and they've just taken such great care in, in, in molding the body so it looked right and, and, and showed off the muscle, musculature and the bones and, and the features of it. They were just enamored with this thing, this creation of God. The body is a beautiful creation. It, it shows God's um, ability to, to put things together. It's better than any machine just works and fits together. It's a beautiful thing. And it was inspiring to Paul. And so he used this image to talk about the body. And we, and we can use it too. We can reclaim it. Um, I want to tell you that individually, we bear the image of God. But collectively, believers represent the work of Christ. We are what he lived and died for. The more we grasp this idea, the more we realize our goal is to honor Christ, the head of our body. When a church is doing this, it is doing very well. It is healthy, attractive, and inspirational. I found this quote when I was putting this together. Um, it's by this woman named Bertha Stewart Diamond. Um, she's an author of a university-level textbook on women's health, and she wrote, Yet this is health, to have a body functioning so perfectly that when its few simple needs are met, it never calls attention to its own existence. And I would add the words only to Christ. I'd think that would be something that we could aim for as a church. That we would have that we'd have this ideal that when we are functioning we would know that when we are doing things the right way people would come in here and they would not see us individually. They would they would not see Dwayne. They wouldn't see Hannah. They would see they would see Christ. Right? Our service, our stuff, our worship, our ministry, our nursery, our youth stuff, our our mission is just when people are hanging out with us, they would see Christ because we're just working together so well that they just realize we're connected to our head who is Christ. That's our goal. That's our aim. And it would be awesome if we could achieve that. Um, so I did this series. The first, the first one that I want to talk with you about tonight is, and I maybe have to preach to others at different times throughout the summer, but this one is about the, diver- the You know, I know what I'm going to say. Sometimes when I'm tired, I I lean on my notes too much. So forgive me if if I stray, but I I know what I'm going to say because it's in the word. It's not not there. When I wanted to talk to you guys tonight about the body and from Romans 12, we talk about this concept of us being sacrificing believers. It's in Romans 12.8. Paul talks about it all through scripture. This is one of his favorite illustrations for the church. He talks about it in Romans, he talks about it in Ephesians chapter 4, he also talks about it in Corinthians chapter 12. It, it, it turns up and over and over again. And, and as I was studying and reading scripture, I was thinking, what is he talking about this for? What, what, do we, what can we learn? How can we apply it? How can it make us more inspirational? And as I was thinking about Calvary Baptist Church, I was thinking, this is, this is the passage that I think can apply to us because I think. We, while we have a group of people that work really well together, we, we know how to do a lot of good things. I think that something that God can always inspire us to do more is to, to sacrifice, to give more and more to him. He's always inviting us to make that sacrifice. Sacrifice in and of itself is inspiring. It shows people that we're willing to live for something. So there are three images if you look up this body thing in, in Scripture from uh, Romans and Ephesians and Corinthians. The first one is that you'll see that what inspired Paul was the body could be a, a group of sacrificing believers. The second was that the, the body could be a group of uh, diverse believers. And the third was that the body could be a group of mature believers. Right? There's a whole set of lessons that we could learn. I just want to focus on the sacrificing one, and that comes from Romans 12, 1-8. I'm going to read it to you, and then we'll get going into it tonight. For by the grace given to me, I say to every one of you, do not think of yourself more highly than you ought, but rather think of yourself with sober judgment in accordance with the measure of faith God has given you. Just as each of us has one body with many members, and these members do not all have the same function, so in Christ, we who are many, form one body, and each member belongs to all the others. We have different gifts according to the grace given us. If man's gift is prophesying, let him use it in proportion to his faith. If it is serving, let him serve. If it is teaching, let him teach. If it is encouraging, let him encourage. If it is contributing to the needs of others, let him give generously. If it is leadership, let him govern diligently. If it is showing mercy, let him do it cheerfully. So I think there are about three sacrifices that, if we looked at this passage, we could sum up. And the first would be that the first inspiring sacrifice that we need to make to to, capture this idea of being Christ's body is this we need to sacrifice self-pleasure for God's pleasure right you get this I get this from the first two verses Romans 12 1 and 2 therefore I urge you brothers in view of God's mercy to offer your bodies as living sacrifices holy and pleasing to God this is your spiritual act of worship do not conform any longer to the pattern of this world but be transformed by the renewing of your mind right so we look at this passage and we see that Paul is is appealing to these people to consider themselves as putting themselves down on the altar. The altar that would have represented the place where people came and they brought their sacrifices and they put something that was dead down. They offered it to God and said, God, please forgive me of my sin. They would do this once, walk away, and then when they broke another rule, they'd come back and use that to continue their relationship with God. But since Christ came, things have changed, and now God is. Now, Paul is saying, it's transformed. Instead of putting something dead down, I want you to put yourself down on the altar. Instead of just doing it once, I want you to do it daily. And that's the whole concept of a living sacrifice. And it's changed everything. It's supposed to be the way we live. And, the, and instead of living for ourselves, getting up every day and saying, well, what, I, what would I like to do? What would I like to accomplish? We have to say, what would God want me to do? What does he want to accomplish in me? So it's this, it's this concept, the, the altar has changed. Next slide, please. It was formerly a place where life met its end. The altar has become a place where believers meet their beginning. You come to a, you come to a place in faith, and you decide, I'm going to follow Christ. And It's, been, it's meant to be more than just a, a, a mental thought. Oh, yes, I agree that Christ is a good teacher. It's meant to be a place where you say, no, I agree that the way I was living has to go, and the, and the way that Christ wants me to live has to replace it. The altar is a place of transformation. The Greek is that word metamorphosis. You might n- remember it, it, it's in the symbol of a butterfly. And an image that I think you could have about your life is, if, if you think of yourself maybe the way a, a butterfly might spend its life, when it starts off and it's going its own way, it starts off as a caterpillar. It's, some people might think caterpillars are neat-looking bugs. I don't know, I, I find them kind of gross. Um, they, they have all those legs, and they fall down on trees, and from trees, and they get on you and all that kind of stuff. And, and did you know that when it's cold, caterpillars will, like, climb a tree and all bundle together to stay warm? Did you know that? Did you really know that? I didn't know that. You know how I found out? I was watching my friend play soccer on a cold day, and I was a little kid, and, um, and I was swinging on this tree. And I came up, and I put my hand around the tree. I thought i put my hand in some moss. And I was just kind of right? Went around the other side, and let me tell you, it wasn't moss. It's was just a whole bunch of mashed up dead caterpillars. Yeah, yeah. So anyways, caterpillars, they live their life, right? And they don't have a clue what's coming. I, I don't know if the God equals them with any sense of like, one day I'll be a butterfly. They just live their life. They stay in that little place, they eat the plant, mm, good, good leaf, and, and they just hang out for a long time, and they think this is all what life is about, right? And then they have to go through this process before they come become what God intended them to be. And when they make that change, their whole existence is different, right? They they go from being these ugly little squirmy creatures that live on one plant to being these butterflies that, that have beauty and fly all over the place and just grace our lives, right? Their whole existence has changed. This is the word that's here, this idea of transformation. That's what is supposed to happen when we come to Christ. We're supposed to be transformed. Now, there's, there's something here. Sometimes we don't end up transformed. Some of you might not be feeling, well, I, I feel more like a caterpillar than a butterfly today. Well, and you might be thinking, well, you know, the NIV says it's a spiritual act of, wor- of worship. And so I keep praying, Lord, change me. Lord, change me. Help me to change. But I, I've looked into this, and it's not, it's not a spiritual act of worship that, that is really mentioned here, as the NIV says. It's, it's a logical act of worship it's something that you do with your mind if you look at the passage you'll see stuff that paul is reasoning with these believers saying if you need to be transformed you have to consider it you have to want this you have to do this yourself you have to lay your life down god won't pick you up and put you off the altar you put yourself there it's your commitment to this new life it's your transformation it's it's a the root word is is a word like logic it's a decision it's something that we consider it's something that we that we have to pursue and it's based on this simple logic, if you can get into the passage, if you, look, if you know anything about Romans, and I'll assume perhaps that maybe it's not on the, on, in your memory right now, the chapter previously, Paul is talking about the Jews, who are the promised people. And what, he teaches, what he's teaching there is that the Jews had, had had God first, before the Gentiles, we are the Gentiles, if you're not Jew, you're a Gentile, the gospel and God went to the Jews first, but they were cut off because they rejected it. And then, because it was cut off, God's plan was, through the rejection, he brought it to the Gentiles. We're all Gentiles. We're all saved through that plan. And basically, Paul is saying to these people, you, you need to put yourself on this altar, and you need to live for God's pleasure. Because if you don't, look what happened to the Jews. If they chose not to live for God's pleasure, they were cut off. They, they're, not, they're no longer with them. He's, he's, not, he's let them go. He's not, they're not connected to the vine, Pastor John would say he's let them go. There's a plan for them. They will be redeemed. But he said we are in by God's grace. And if we claim to come to God and yet we don't actually want to live for his pleasure, he says, what's going to happen to you? The logic is simple. If they can be cut off, what will happen to us if we do not choose to live for his pleasure? So the main emphasis here is is that we would see this passage and make that decision in our heads, not not to pray anymore, Lord, change me. Lord, change me, but to say I need to change. I need to change. I think you can be empowered by that because it means that that sometimes when you're struggling through a problem, you do have the ability to do it. Maybe sometimes there's just things that well, I, I don't want to change. That doesn't mean you can't change. Maybe it's hard to change, but that doesn't mean you can't change. Maybe everybody will feel differently about you if you don't change, but it doesn't mean you can't change. This passage tells me that we can make some of those big changes, some of those things that we thought, we'll never get over this sin, or I'll never learn to treat that person right, or I'll never, I'll never get my manners in check, or I'll never be good at this. We can choose to put ourselves on the altar, and we have to choose through the renewing of our mind, through the focus of what we do, to follow God. Is it something that we do all in ourselves? No. The Holy Spirit empowers us to want to do that. But it's something that if we don't choose to do it, I don't believe the Holy Spirit will make us do that kind of stuff. He didn't invite us to become new robots. We are people that choose to follow him daily. The emphasis here is that we would follow him on a daily basis and, and demonstrate this transformed life. The issue that I think that, that I want to keep coming back to is, and I guess it's, a, it's something that uh, we would like to see more of, I, the one thing I don't understand is, is how, how people will come to Christ and then maybe, through incorrect teaching or, or whatever, think like, well, you know what, I've, I've decided that Christ is my, is my leader, but I'm not really sure I'm ready to be baptized. I'm not, I'm not really sure I'm ready to make that sacrifice. I'm not, not really sure I'm, I, I, I can be good enough all the time or all that kind of stuff. And sometimes I think when people have that desire or that thought, they'll say, I'm not going to get baptized. I'm going to save baptism until I'm actually ready to, to live daily. I think that's a real problem. I think that makes the church uninspiring. Because when people look at the scripture and they say, aren't you supposed to believe and be baptized? And you say, well, I believe. But, and I think if you, if you and I were to talk, I'd try to tell you maybe privately and, and be considerate when I did, but I'd, I'd try to go with you and say, you know, is, is there any reason why you haven't been able to obey Christ? Is there any reason why you haven't been able to participate in this one thing that represent this act of laying your life down willingly, And then rising willingly to walk with God every day to make him your priority. Is there any reason that you really have? If you're afraid of the water, is that a reason not to get baptized? I know people that are afraid of the water. Oh, I might drown. The water is only this high. Right? I've never heard of a drowning in the tank. Right? Uh, I said, well, I'm just not good enough. Well, the water is there to help you get clean. Right? There's no reason. And the more I think about it, and I've been thinking about it a lot, I'm just thinking, you know, there's absolutely no reason why someone could tell me I'm a believer, but I just haven't been baptized. I'm waiting for that. It's one of those things we've got to get done right away. It's one of those inspirational steps. It's the first step of sacrifice. And if you can't make that first step, how will you make the other ones? It's the easiest thing to do to get baptized. You do it in front of Christians. They applaud you. They listen to you. They stand with you. You join a church, and they're all happy for you. The other things that Christ wants you to do, that laying down your life stuff in front of people that will persecute you and hurt you, that stuff's really hard. How are you going to get around to that if you can't do the easy thing? So I think you'll know what you need to do if, if you apply to that case. I believe, but I'm not baptized. The first sacrifice that we need to make to be this, these big-body people is we've got we to gotta sacrifice our self-pleasure for God's pleasure. The way we need to live has got to be about God's pleasure. Now you're thinking, well, won't I get to do anything I like to do? Of course you will. Because God is not pleased when you're not happy. The things that he wants you to do... They're the things that are going to lead to your ultimate pleasure. That's going to change you. You're going to be living your life like that butterfly, not like the caterpillar. The second thing, the second sacrifice that Paul invites us to consider is this one. Now, this might get to some of you. Um, He wants us to sacrifice ego trips and pick up reality checks, right? The first one, we we sacrifice self-pleasure at the altar. We pick up God's pleasure. Now, we lay down ego. We pick up reality. Okay? Where did I see this? I see this in the next, next, pa- next part of the passage. He says, um, for, the, for by the grace given me, I, I like that he says that, right? Because I think he knows I'm just about to poke someone in the eye with this statement. I'm sorry, he says, this is God's grace. I, I don't really have reason to say this to you other than God telling me to do it. Do not think of yourself more highly than you ought. But rather think of yourself with sober judgment in accordance with the measure of faith God has given you. Just as Ephesus said, um, just as each of us has one body with mem- many members, and those members do not have the, all the same function, so in Christ we who are many form one body, and each member belongs to all the others. If we look at this passage, I think it can be distilled to this. The church is no place for ego trips. It's no place for people to be sitting around with big heads or little ones. Right? Ego goes both ways. Whether you have a small opinion of yourself or a big opinion of yourself, it's still your ego, Right? I don't know if you realize that, but you can be, it's just as wrong to be, to fake humility as it is to be haughty and proud, right? Because either way, you're not thinking about how God created you and what his opinion is of you. Right, You're thinking about what other people think. If you're thinking of yourself as being small, you've listened to too many people who've criticized you. They've probably lied and said things that don't really matter, and you've internalized that, and you've decided, well, I can't do anything, and you live in a little shell. That's wrong. That's sinful. That's not living by God's standard. And if you're living with a big head, which I've been accused of many times, he um, didn't even laugh, thanks. <laughs> you're like, so, I'm glad someone told him. Um, it's okay. You can laugh with me. You guys don't, they can laugh at me. Tell them. These guys know. We laugh at it all the time. Um, the church is no place for big heads. If you're listening to all these people, you're still living, you're living in a sinful state because you're probably not as good as you think you are, right? So, Paul comes and he says, there's no place for ego trips in the church. No place for inflated or deflated egos. Um, he goes on to say that the reason is we all have the same story. You might think, well, you know, I've been around this place for 352 years I put the pews in with my teeth something like that right that's one of the things people like to say right I've seen all 17 pastors at this place you know I don't know right but we have these ways that we measure our worth in the body don't we like be honest right we do I mean I'm up here obviously I'm more valuable than you right I mean, it's, it's all funny, but it's, it's true, right? People come in, and they don't understand what's going on, so they're like, well, okay, the guy up front, he's important. The guy at the back, maybe they're not as important. The people up front, well, how'd you get those special seats, you know, right? So we have these ways of doing that, but really when Paul says, if you look at it, our story is all the same. The ways that we divide ourselves and, and, and segregate ourselves into these little totems and, and, and spots on the pole and be like, oh, hey, he's up here, and he's about here, and, you know, you've been a Christian for three years, and he's been seven years, but you sinned three times this week, and I only did two, you know, so... All that figuring out, it doesn't make any sense. We have this story instead. Our sinner, we're, I, I was a sinner, and that was awful. I'm forgiven, and that's wonderful. I'm gifted, and it's supernatural, and I've got an assignment, and I'm responsible. You like that? I'm a sinner, and it was awful, right? You have to know that it was awful, right? You can't just come in, I was a sinner. You've got to know that it was awful, Right? I'm forgiven, and that's wonderful. That's how we know you fell on God's grace, that he took that sin away, and, and you know, you're know you forgiven. It's wonderful. I'm gifted, and it's supernatural. Whatever talent I bring, it's not my own. It's what God gave me, and I use it to contribute to the church. And I have a job to do, and I'm responsible. That's what's going on here. In, in the body of Christ, everybody has a spot. Everybody belongs. Um, This might trouble you if you like to think that you deserve heaven more than others. This might trouble you, but it shouldn't surprise you to hear Paul speak this way. After all, it is Paul's teaching that inspires one of the theological pillars of the Baptist faith, which is, it is salvation by grace alone, and not by works, lest nobody should boast. Right? You guys were a little bit shaky on that one. I know you know it because Baptist people taught it to me. It's salvation by grace alone. That means that I have the right to be up here. I don't have any preachers in my past. When I sat before and said, Lord, do you want me to speak? I'm like, I don't know, buddy. That, my dad doesn't talk to anybody. Right? Like, how can I, I don't get to put in my bio, son of a preacher man. Right? But in God, in his strange way, says, tonight I want you to be the guy speaking up there. And I'm trying to embrace that. Right? I'm gifted. It's supernatural. I've got a job to do, and I'm responsible. I'm going to take responsibility for that. right? Salvation is by grace alone. Nobody is able to say they deserve it. No one young or old, no conservative or liberal, no one exuberant or reserved, no one poor or rich, no one in a large congregation or a small one, no pastor or parishioner, no one can say, I deserve this. God's grace has leveled the playing field. And it's cool because on this team, everybody has a spot. I was looking for people, an inspiring story that, that I could show you um, to make you realize what this is like. And I found this story some years ago. Someone had, it's, uh, put a link to me. I've got it on my Facebook. So if you've seen it before because you're on Facebook and you actually check stuff like that, then I apologize. But I know most people don't. I found this story of um, literally of the, of the guy, you know the joke, what do you call a guy with no arms and legs in a pool? Bob, right? I found that guy. He, there's a picture of him on the next slide, I think. Right? This is a Christian guy. He's 25 years old. His name is Nick Vujicic. No arms, no legs. He was born this way. No medical explanation for what he was there, what, why he was that way. No sickness, no anything. They have no idea. The doctors don't know why. He believes it's for God's glory. He's in the church. He pre- he's preached to two million people. He hops around. I watched some footage. I couldn't bring it here, but he walks on the stage. He he talks to people. They love him. He he, um, ministers to people with disabilities. He can swim. He can do all sorts of things. He has this great big ministry. You can find out about it there. But isn't that amazing? Isn't that amazing? Like, you might think, what what can I do? What do I have to offer? I, uh, you know, I have nothing. Well, you have four things that this guy doesn't have that are pretty important to ministry. And he's figured out a way. He's using his mouth, and he's using it to bring God glory. He's got a place in the body, and God has decided that he's going to be a spokesperson for the church internationally, right? So whether you've got a small ego or a big ego, you look at this guy and you say, man, it's, it's what God does. It's in his grace. It's how he looks at us and defines how we fit in the body, right? So I'm, I was a sinner, and that's awful. I'm forgiven, and that's wonderful. I'm gifted and it's supernatural. I have work to do, and I'm responsible. That's the second sacrifice that we have to make. We have to make the sacrifice of ego trips for reality checks. No one here is better than anybody else. We all belong to the body. A sign of health is when we really understand that. I think great church movements, our future as a church, the future of the church in general in this area, is when we come to claim that as, as true for us. When we realize we're not in competition with one another, but we are working together. Um, I think that will inspire a generation to continue to work together and, and help us move forward as a church. So if the first sacrifice was costly, laying down our lives, the second sacrifice is sobering, making us think properly about ourselves. Uh, the third sacrifice is, is just really, really tough because it's countercultural. It's independence for interdependence. They sound so similar. Independence for interdependence. Our culture, from the time we, we have our kids, we start teaching kids to be alone, right? How many people have, or if you have a family, how many people have two kids or more? How many of you have one bedroom for each kid? Right? Right? You know, I noticed this because in my, when I went to visit my dad at his house, their house had five kids and two bedrooms. One for the parents and one for the children. Right, The house that I got to visit in Bolivia, there were no bedrooms. It was just one room. Right? But here, we have this whole just ingrained idea of we're going to lead people to in, independence because what we want to see is a self-made man. You've got to be able to hold your own, um, whatever, the, you know, pull yourself up by your own shoes and you know, do all that kind of stuff on your own. That's, that's the way we teach people. We teach people to be solitary. You've right? got to be able to learn for yourself. You've got to be able to eat for yourself. You've got to be able to take care of yourself. You can't trust anybody. Gotta stand up and be your own man. Right? So we have this idea from very young that we, if we're going to be mature, we are going to end up being independent. Isn't that what we look at when we launch our kids, launch our kids out from the home? Are you ready to fly? Let's see if you can do it, right? Right? We teach them to manage the money, right? Manage the car. You know, and we, need, we need to be able to handle ourselves to that degree, right? But but really, in this culture, and you can see it because there are other cultures where they keep the kids home until they're, like, 35, right? And you're like, oh, my goodness, right? Right? But um, that's, that's, that's the West Indian culture sometimes, too. But uh, but there's a contrast. We, we send our kids out. We're always getting them ready for that 17-year-old magic number when, finally, they're ready to be independent. I'm now given the right to live alone, Right? And we we teach people to that. But that's so contrary to what we see in the body, this concept of the body. It fights against that. We are taught to be interdependent. If you keep reading, I've read some of it already, but just as each of you has one body with many members, and these members do not have all the same functions, so in Christ we who are many form one body, and each member belongs to all the others. We have different gifts according to the grace given us. If a man's gift is prophesying, let it... Let him use it in proportion to his faith. If it's serving, let him serve. If it's teaching, let him teach. If it's encouraging, let him encourage. If it's contributing to the needs of others, let him give generously. If it is leadership, let him lead diligently. If it's showing mercy, let him do it cheerfully. Now, I don't want to get into the idea of the giftedness. I do want to say that, of course, God recognizes us as individuals. He knows who we're here. Like, he doesn't ask us all to join the choir because he knows some of us don't sing, Right? we can't all play the drums because some of us can't even dance, right? Um, we can't all preach. We can't all teach. Um, not all of us are going to be suited to, to shake hands at the door. Not all of us are really going to enjoy um, cleaning up after people. We've all got different things. God has created variety, but he hasn't really asked us to be independent. God, man was not made to live alone. He's, he's invited us to live interdependently, communally, Together as a community in this body. And that's how the church is meant to function. So he teaches us to to think of ourselves as belonging to each other. I think that's a fundamental change that you might have to consider. Maybe some of us, if we're married, we realize I belong to my wife. The ring says I'm hers. I purchased her for whatever the price of the ring was. And the honeymoon. I'm not talking the way I would talk to my wife. I'm talking the way some of you unromantic men might talk to your wives. <laughs> right? But we we, we, we we are comfortable with that. The idea that we show up as couples, okay, those people are together. They belong together. Right? But when we show up in groups, you know, like, you know, we don't, we don't think of people belonging to each other. We, we, we still try to think of people as, well, that person's their, their own person. Right? But we've been invited by Christ through through the teaching of Paul, to think of ourselves as belonging. So that even when we look in this group and we see, okay, we've got groups. We've got sections where there's maybe one or three or a whole bunch of people and they're close and they have these affinity groups and all that kind of stuff. It doesn't matter what our geography looks like in this room. We actually belong to each other. And beyond that, Calvary, one of the things that we need to consider is that even though we're such a, a large entity of believers in this area, you know, 1,000 people, 800 people and all that kind of stuff, we think, well, isn't that enough? Isn't our body big enough? Right? We still belong to other people, smaller churches, bigger churches, the, the, the believers in the churches right here in this corner. We belong to that body because there's one head and one body. We can't be thinking of ourselves as a church that's achieved something and therefore we can float in this kind of island status where we don't need anybody else to help us. And, oh, you know what, we, we can't accept their help. Or we don't want to get involved over here because that might drag us down or, or their focus is wrong or, or that, that thing is not going to help us out. So we, can't, we can't go that way if we're going to really experience this body thing that God is talking about. It's this idea of being interdependent that inspires us and can, I think, can inspire other people, lonely people. People are looking for to, to a place not just to hang out but to really belong. And when they realize, I've come to Christ and when I walked into this room and I've got brothers and sisters who who are concerned that I'm sitting alone, who are concerned that I'm living alone, who are concerned that I'm I'm going through some hard times, they're calling me up, they're saying, can I pray for you? Can I bring you something? Can I help you out? Can I come and clean your floors? I mean, that's amazing. That's what the church is going on. I I wish people could see that. But they sometimes won't get far enough because of some of that sin stuff we talked in there. But when they get in there, I think they can see that. When they see us living interdependently, I think it's inspiring and if we could figure out how to do that thing that we do so well in this church taking care of each other and trying to link up these other churches in our area man i I wonder if our newspapers and people might look and say wow they figured out something in that church that's going on the illustration that i that i found of this um, represents a choice because basically this is a choice again it's one of these decisions we can have just like we can lay ourselves down and pick ourselves up to live for Christ daily, just like we can choose to live with a big head or a small head instead of living with the right picture. We can choose to live independently or interdependently. Well, GM um, made a, made, makes a car. I, don't, I guess they still make it. The Impala? I'm not really a car guy. Is, is that still going on? Anybody know? I, I, I noticed it because it comes up like it's, it's, it's big in the hip-hop culture. Okay? Um, so that's, why, that's where I noticed cars from because I like that. Showed up with some dancers in a video or something like that. Anyhow, we talked about this Impala. The Impala was this car that was looking pretty cool. Um, and it has this, this thing. It can use four cylinders to save gas. Or you can use eight cylinders and burn it up. Right? And so they're, they're promoting the car as this, this way to save energy, to reduce its power and drive safely, you know, like just all conservatively, um, right? But my question would be like this. If I had that car, why would I ever use it on four cylinders, right? What, you know, really, if, if you think about what the car is meant to do and what it's designed to do, who would want to ride, drive on four just to save some gas, right? I'd be just driving as quickly as I could to the gas, to the, to the gas station and filling up and say, I want to keep going, man. I want to fly in this thing. Eight cylinders in that little car? Right? That, that's, that's, that's pretty big. Right? So I look at that as a church. Why would we choose to function with only a few of us working? Why wouldn't we want to go at full power? Why wouldn't we want to have the maximum contribution of every person here making this thing go? Instead of just humming along, saving gas, maybe, oh, it's okay, you guys rest over there. We'll let all these people work too hard. You know, and then when they're done working too hard, they'll rest and you guys can work too hard. Why don't we all just work at the same time? Wouldn't that be easier? Wouldn't that be more exciting? Wouldn't that be, wouldn't that be awesome? Wouldn't that be inspirational? Well, I think, I think you guys get it. I think you understand how important th- th- this is to listen to what God has said in his word and to pay attention to him. Th- this idea of, of being big body people, I wanted to inspire you. I wanted to tie it into the live big thing. But I wanted you guys to become fans. I know you guys love this church. I've always heard that you love this church. But I want you to become fans of what God loves about the church. Not just about what you love about the church. God sees what we can be. And he challenges you tonight to to make that sacrifice. To choose to live for his pleasure before your own. To choose to think about yourself the right way. To understand, to have that sober judgment. Not something based on how much you contribute or how little... You think you can contribute to the work, but just to contribute, to be part of the body. And he asked us to work together, to work on this concept of belonging together, which is even tougher than just liking each other because we still belong to each other. We're family, brothers and sisters, because Christ brought us together and and we introduced us to his father and we're all in, adopted. All that same story. It's all working out the same way. This is the church that, that Jesus Christ sees. This is the church that I'm so excited about. I believe that the only way that all these problems we're suffering with in our economy, I think that could be based on our morality. People who don't understand money. People who are caught up in greed or, or the idea that I needed more. I need to look like I'm doing well. Um, um, people that are, have lost their houses because they got married too quickly and they made some really foolish commi- uh, financial commitment after making a really foolish marriage commitment. It breaks up and they lose their houses. Um, I think the answer is, like Bill Hybel says, the, the, the hope of the world is the church. That's why I'm a big fan of it. It changes lives. It helps people. And that's what God is doing here. So I want to encourage you. I want to encourage you to keep doing these three things. Keep making these three sacrifices. Put all your energy and your effort into trying to do these things. I believe God will bless us. And as he blesses us, God has promised that he will bless the community. That's his plan. Let's pray. Father, I want to thank you for the time we've had tonight. Thank you for the strength to deliver your word. It's good. Um, Lord, I, I, I thank you for the way this church has ministered to to our family personally in the last little while. And, and Father, um, I wouldn't want anybody to assume that because I'm, I'm, I'm preaching this message that, that, I, that I think of Calvary as, as anything less than a, than a wonderful place to be and participate. But God, you're always calling us forward. You're always leading us somewhere to the next thing. And God, you've given us this great picture of a church, a place where we can be sacrificing and enjoying your presence at the same time where to have a sober judgment about ourselves helps us to realize that, that you've made us beautiful, that you've made us part of this body, that, that whatever our past has been, you've wiped it out. For whatever reasons, we don't have to compete with each other to achieve your favor, Lord. You just love us, and you've equipped us to serve. And God, you've, in doing that, you've allowed us to have a way to function and move forward, and that uh, there's nothing that can stand in the way of your plans and what you want us to do. There were no armies that could stand against Israel. What can stand against the church? Nothing, Lord. So God, let us give ourselves fully to you. Let us rest on you completely. And Lord, we ask that you would build into us and keep building things into us that would inspire a world that has lost sight of the church, that no longer wants to look here. Lord, draw their attention back. Draw their attention back to your people, God. Ask this in Jesus' name.